You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Welcome to the Bridge to You podcast, hosted by yours truly, Monique Russell, where we focus on promoting Black unity worldwide through conversations that help us understand ourselves and each other. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Bridge to You podcast. I am your host, Monique Russell. And today in my guest chair, I have none other than the amazing Dave Crane. Dave Crane is a leader's leader. Let me tell you, he's not afraid to speak up, speak out, use his voice. And why would he be? Because he teaches leaders all over the world how to speak on stage. Dave is a motivational speaker, certified hypnotherapist, life coach, NLP master and practitioner. He won't have you walking around like a chicken or clucking like a duck, I promise. He's a marketing genius and he understands world news, leadership and justice in a premium way. He is a former BBC journalist, a United Nations speaker, the founder and CEO of Dave Crane Global. His network is really vast and his events have been broadcast to over 8 billion, that's billion with the B guys, people. He's worked with some of the biggest names in the business, Les Brown, Jack Kenfield, James Brown, Sting, Ziggy Marley, so many others, but that's not why he's here today. He's here today because he's going to give us an insight into his personal journey of how he became so powerful, so invincible, so magnetic as a black man. Dave Crane, welcome to the show. Thank you. You know, the thing is, they're going to be really disappointed from the moment my mouth opens. They're going to go, oh, that was it. That was it. The build-up made it sound like the Wizard of Oz. So literally, I'm a little bloke that comes from behind the curtain and goes, hello, Dorothy, I can send you home. <laughs> and here's the thing. When I broadcast, at the, at the, well, the Rugby Sevens in Dubai would go out on average every year for a weekend to about one to two billion people. I did it for 20 years. So that means, at the very least, we went out to a blue of a footprint of about, what, about 20 billion people. The planet only has seven and a half. So nobody believes me when I tell them how many people we could have reached. Because oh, wow. that's why I just, I was a billion. A billion, yeah, a billion. It's just easier to round it down so people's heads don't explode. But all the rest of your, the stuff you said is true. Keep coming. It was lovely. <laughs> Dave, I'm going to ask you. You are someone who has traveled to many places. So I always like to ask my guests, if you could be anywhere in the world right now, where would you choose to be and why? All right, difficult question, a great question. First place I'd like to be is home because I love being here with my family. Uh, and I love the fact that with technology, I can just go online and reach anywhere. I mean, we're chatting now, you're in Atlanta, I'm in what Dubai, so we can do this perfectly. Given a choice of where I'd like to be for a short but amazing period of time, I'd go for the Maldives. 
because it's just the most beautiful place I've ever been in my life. Uh, everything's blue. The sky is blue. The sea is blue. You've got palm trees and sand, but everything is a little island. So literally, it, everyone's got a five-star hotel or so built on it. So you're living in luxury, um, and you can go scuba diving, or you can go to another island, or you can go on a plane, and do all sorts of amazing stuff. But if you live there, you would want to drown yourself because there's nowhere else to go. But if you visit, it's just paradise. So last year, we went to three times, three times in one year, which is fantastic. Wow. I was working well, which is great. And I managed to combine family holidays with working. So before they turned around, I said, Dad, you're always working. I was like, hey, family time. We go, right, we love you. I'm off again. I just, so it was a bit of a juggle for getting that right. But I think that would be my ideal place to be. If I was going to find a final resting place to get older and fatter, and not do much. Hmm, I don't know. I love the beach. So it could well be somewhere like Thailand. Mm. I love the mountains, but it would have to have access to a beach, which is have to be a very high beach for that to happen. I mean, the West Indies has some incredible mountains and, and beaches as well. So that's kind of cool. Or the countryside or all the above. It'd have to have warm weather because I hate wearing more than one layer. That's the thing about the UK. As much as I love being from the UK, you wear about 20 layers. And when you wake up, the sky is gray. And when you go to bed, the sky is gray. And during the day, it goes a light gray. And that's when you know you've got summer. So um, I'm not sure. It was a great, very good question. I will come back to you. Too late for this to be able to come up with So you know what? I haven't been to the Maldives. That's definitely on my list. And the way you have described it has made it even more solid and firm that definitely it'll be on my list. It's amazing. It's the most amazing place on the planet for me. Beautiful. Wow. So Dave, one of the things that I really love about talking with people on this show, Bridge to You, is that my guests typically, they draw my attention because of the language they use, the stance they're taking on issues related to Blackness, Black people speaking up for others, coming from a place of love. And we can see that those things they tell us about the individual, you know, how they see the world because we see them showing, showing up in the world that way. And you've done all that and more. So when I see you showing up online and, and the way you're speaking up, especially in times of difficulty when people are afraid to say things, I am always asking and wondering to myself, you seem to be invincible to the negative impacts that many Black men have faced because of their skin color. And I want to know who helped you develop this mindset and approach. Can you just take us a little bit into your journey? Yeah, I can do. I mean, I, I've been very fortunate. I'm actually mixed race. Uh, my father's white. My mom's um, from the West Indies, from the Caribbean. So she's very dark skinned. I'm a, I'm a combination of both. And so I grew up in white societies mainly. Now that has two effects on you. You either learn to be very good at fighting and making people laugh or you disappear so deep into yourself that you don't make any impact and you might as well be invisible. But you know yourself, you can't be invisible when you stand out like a sore thumb. Not a sore thumb, a beautifully tanned thumb. And so what I had to do was reinvent myself to be very public. I wasn't a fighter. Um, I was an okay sports person. But what I really did was I loved to entertain. If I'm going to be looked at, I'd love to make people laugh. And so I started my early days as a singer. I was doing shows all around the country. I came second in a talent competition in Scotland where I grew up um, when I was about 11, 10, 11, something like that, amongst adults and everybody else. 
uh, I won various competitions, like for instance, winning Blind Date, the dating game, um, and lots of stuff like that. So I've always stepped up to it. As for having a thick skin, uh, I've learned along the way that you've got two choices. You can be the victim or you can be the person who takes charge of it. Not everybody's going to like me. and I couldn't care less if it don't. I know that one day I won't be here anymore. So between there and then, I want to get as much out of life as possible to prove to me that I've been here. There's no legacy involved. There's no, you know, um, afterlife thing for me. I'm not a particularly religious person at all. But what I do think is if I live, the only thing that's going to live after me is my daughter and my wife and my dogs maybe, if they're very lucky. But I do believe that the people I, I can reach and help and the things that I will share with people, they could live after, not with my name attached to it, just for the fact that people will change and then that will change others and that will carry on living like paying it forward. As for dealing with stuff from people, uh, I've been quite lucky. I, I only fight battles I know I can win and that's strategic. So I won't, for, for instance, when it came to the Black Lives Matter stuff, I got a massive wake up call because I, I'm, don't get me wrong, I've never tried to pretend that I'm not of color at all because that'd be ridiculous and it's just not true. But I haven't tried to throw myself into any battlegrounds to try and shake people up because it's not really how I function. But when I saw what was happening with Black Lives Matters, I realized that I had to take stock of where my positioning is with this because if I've done the stuff I've done in my life and I've had the effect for people, and I'm a life coach, and I'm recognized by people, I owe it to everybody who's waiting for me to step up to do something. I can't turn around and look at the Beyonce's and, and the Jay-Z's of this world and say, right, you should be doing this for us, because they can't, and many of them aren't, because they think it's gonna be a precarious challenge for them, and it might affect their job, and it may well affect their job, and you've gotta make a decision, am I willing to lose my job for this, like Colin Kaepernick? For me, it was quite simple. Once I decided that I was going to do something about it, I threw myself into it. But it had to be done in a strategic way. It had to be done in a way that made sense for my brand so it didn't seem like I was becoming an emotional wreck and then making it really uncomfortable for people with no way that they could move forward and no way that I could move it forward itself. So for instance, if it became really difficult to talk to me, people just wouldn't talk to me and then I'd be no good to anybody. So what I strategically decided to do when it came around to the Black Lives Matter stuff is I made a, a protest of saying that all, uh, Black Lives Matter versus All Lives Matter, diversity matters, and that's the angle I went at. I also realized that there's no point trying to change the opinions of racists because Darwin will end up changing their opinion. At some point, they won't be around anymore or they'll find their life really difficult. And what's going on in America is going on in lots of different countries. I'm quite lucky. I live in a brown country in Dubai. And Dubai is a, a predominantly a Muslim country. But you've got like 180 odd nationalities all living here in perfect harmony, like, you know, Stevie Wonder and Paul McCartney's piano. And we all get on really well because they put the business at the heart of why people should get on. So I decided my battleground was not going to be to go out and pretend this is the way it is because I don't really have that many challenges. And what I do, what I've got is a real challenge with systemic racism where I just wouldn't get a call to do things and people who are the lightest, not light, lightest white people uh, would get the call, even if they're not anywhere near as good as me. I knew that was just a thing. It's just unfortunate. But if you say anything about it, it looks like you've got a problem. So I realized the battleground for me was actually I wanted to work with producing content that would affect the 10 to 15% of white people 
who are non-racist, but not actively anti-racist. So these are the people who turn around and they agree that Black Lives Matter is important and they agree that everyone is equal and they agree that the racism that's around is a terrible thing and they want it to go away, but they won't say anything. But it's important to hit those people, not hit them, but to, to reach those people because I want to empower them to say something. Because if you've got a black face, it's really hard to change the establishment because they just turn around and say, oh yeah, you would say that. Always complaining. But if you've got a white face and you turn around and say, this is wrong, it's really difficult for the powers that be to turn around and say, oh, we can ignore this because they can't easily because the people are already on the same platform as them. So my aim is to, to get that 10 to 15% of white people, and it is white people, it's not of color, it's white people specifically who are non-racist to become anti-racists so they change the pivots and change the tipping point. So we see walls start to crumble, then come tumbling down. We see policies start to be addressed with questioning that maybe moves on to something. Nothing's going to happen in our lifetime. I really don't think it is. But what I do think is we'll see a blip of improvements. But I also know that in 40 years' time, America, for instance, will be a predominantly brown country. Now, we know this is happening anyway. That's why we've got such a kickback against it. And it won't be just Afro-Americans. It will be Koreans and Blacks getting married. And it will be Filipinos and, and Latinos getting married. And it'll be a real mixture of a melting pot of people saying, I love you. Where are you from? You've got spicy food? Come around, cook something. And then we'll get to it. So I think that the real difference now is about making as many people accept it who you can get closest to you and they get closest to their people and closest to their people. As for people who don't like it, who don't like me, they might not like me anyway, and I couldn't care less. My beautiful daughter, Maya, from the age of two, I taught her, if mommy doesn't agree with you, daddy doesn't agree with you, the teachers don't agree with you, but you think you're right, tell everybody they can kiss it. Wow. And that's the way Listen, Dave, you, oh man, you're dropping some nuggets. You are dropping some powerful nuggets here today. First of all, I mean, when you talked about, you know, your early upbringing and winning the performing arts, it sounds like having that exposure into the performing arts world from an early age sort of gave you some impetus or some uh, practice and speaking up and speaking out. And then when you talked about the fact that, you know what, you didn't really have this challenge on a personal level, but mainly on a systemic level, that was the impetus that got you to speak up. My question to you is, you know, you talked a little bit about the, the backlash that maybe a Beyonce or a Jay-Z might face if they were speaking up in a certain way. Did you feel nervous or scared or wondered how speaking up this strategically would impact your business or your brand? Yeah, I was absolutely petrified. It was outside of my comfort zone and I'm a real control freak about my comfort zone. I like to live outside my comfort zone, but I like it to be measurable steps. I only fight battles I know I can win. And this one, I was stepping way out of my comfort zone because most people who know me don't think of me as color. Once you get to know me, it's just like, that's Dave. Or so they tell me anyway. Um, but once I'd made a decision that I was going to do it, it wasn't about me anymore. I would not be able to live with myself if I hadn't done everything within my, my, my being 
to step things as close to the finishing line with as much as I can offer to do it. So for instance, when Black Lives Matter was having a protest in the streets, every day I was thinking about content I can put out there, or every other day I was thinking about content I could put out there. So it became manageable for people to say, Dave's got this that is sharing, but I didn't lose my brand at the same time. So they could see that I took public speaking, but right now I'm talking about this as part of my public speaking. And it had to be measured the right kind of way. As for whether it would do any long-term damage to me, I really felt that it wasn't my call. My job is to protect my family, my wife, my beautiful wife Aziza, my gorgeous daughter Maya, my dogs, the people close to me that rely on me. My job is to protect them. That's it. So I won't let anything affect their livelihood on my behalf. So I'm making calculated risks. Are they still okay? Can we weather this storm? What if there's a backlash? And at every stage, the answer is no, keep going. The fact it's uncomfortable is exactly why you should do it because you've got to start a tipping point. It's like a snowballing effect. The heavy hitting has already been done. We could see it on the TV, people are willing to go out. And one of the things that struck me so much, and it makes me slightly uncomfortable to talk about black versus white versus brown versus Latino, what, any of this other stuff, is when I looked on TV, I saw seas of white faces white male faces and female faces, and I saw black people in amongst them. Now this is key because we've got a generation who don't see color. They've got friends on social media across the globe and they just know when something is wrong. It's not like the 60s where it was all black people with a couple of peppered white people who were joining in the protest. This was people of a certain generation who have said no. It's like, for instance, I'll talk more about it because this is what the show specifically is about. I don't normally talk about race, but if you look at what's happening to TikTok right now in, in American politics, I believe that that's a direct result of TikTok using their power of all the teenagers who didn't want to see the racism in America get any worse. So what they did was they bought loads of tickets for the first rally after lockdown. And when that rally came along, they bought a million tickets and nobody turned up because they basically pranked it. And that was all on TikTok. I find no surprise that now TikTok is taking the punch, which is that you-know-who wants to close it down and make sure that never happens again. It's just the way it is. And it's a difficult battle, but if anybody wants this world to be better, and let's face it, if it doesn't get better, why are we still here? Uh-huh. It's got to get better. And what are you willing to do? I'm an old fart. I'm 52. I've got to look after my family. But for me, I'm done. I'm happy. I could, I could not wake up tomorrow. And I've had a great time. But it, so this is borrowed time. And I calculate it's right to give it as much as I can do to this cause to help as much as possible. You're not That's, an old fart, Dave. You're not an old fart. You're quite young. I'll say that. <laughs> I'm a young old fart. Then. <laughs> I think what you're saying is really important because even in the example with TikTok, typically when someone is speaking up or going against the status quo, there's that natural fear, there's that backlash fear. And and the reality is we've seen it happen over and over where people who have spoken up have been negatively penalized or had consequences that damage their opportunities, their work, their life, you know, things of that sort. So to see you, and I've watched you consistently show up 
And as you said, strategically, not just from a complaining standpoint, but from an education standpoint about why are we here and what can we do and just really going through even when people felt uncomfortable, even when people felt like, you know what, we're done, we've had enough. When it was in the height of the protesting right after the death of George Floyd, you were showing up consistently day in and day out. And I think I, I sent you a note saying, wow, like I really see you know, what you're doing and it's very inspiring and impactful. Now I wanna jump to this whole notion because you're living in Dubai. And a lot of times, I know you said you had um, Caribbean heritage as well, and you also lived in the UK and you lived in Scotland and you've been all around. Um, And one of the things that I have come across is there's this notion of division amongst Black people, feeling from the Caribbean, from, you know, Africa, from America. It's a misunderstanding and there's different notions or feelings, negative feelings towards different ethnicities yeah you, you want to go see, there i want, want go- i this is what this show is about we're going there if yeah. you're if you're willing to go there we're gonna the can, well the top won't go back in the can once you we're start this going, going to <laughs> teach our audience and they're gonna learn from your stories All right. so you have taken a very vocal stance living in dubai it's not a situation that has negatively impacted your life personally like day to day what black american people are facing but for some reason you felt like this was part of your fight and you joined in the fight and you put your your platform on the line that speaks volumes and it tells us who are watching that you don't have that belief that you know this division um, is something that needs to be perpetuated so i want to find out from you you know did you encounter any negative beliefs towards black americans caribbeans throughout your career, throughout your experiences? And what, is, what has it been like for you personally? I'm cringing because I know you know where you are going with this and where I'm going to go. So here's a factor. When I started doing this stuff about Black Lives Matters, um, a dear friend of mine, Ernesto Verdugo, who's a very white but Mexican Dutch guy who I do the toilet paper diaries with, you know him very well, um, he shared my video all about diversity matters amongst some of his friends who are black and black uh, Afro-Caribbean, sorry, Afro-American blacks. And they turned around and said, what does he know? He's British. And that knocked me for six. I was thinking, what, we're not all in this together. There's a grading of who's allowed to speak up and who's allowed to, 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 to get involved. There's a phrase called put me, you're allowed to put your skin in the game. That's an old slave term. Got skin in the game, the skin of black people being put into the game. That's where the original phrase came from. So I was rejected wow. on that. So my choice was, do I step back and go, you're on your own? I thought, no, if you reject me, that's because you're an idiot. That's your problem. I'm not doing it for you if you don't get it. I'm doing it for all the people who need my help because I'm articulate and I know how to work media. I've got a big following, so I'm gonna get stuck in. And if you don't get it, that's fine. Because what I found there was a kind of Stockholm syndrome where you fall in love with your captors. And it felt to me like they'd fallen in love with the rules of what is gradients of black. 
And I've watched this happen with the response to Kamala Harris, where on Fox News, they've turned around and said, she's not a proper black because she doesn't have slave ancestry. So therefore, how is she joining the struggle? Ha 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 ha. And I'm thinking, what, 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 what? Do we all have to be horribly oppressed to be able to be black and get racist lifestyle experiences? Is that the way that it's categorized? And I realize that, that Stockholm Syndrome, the reason I use this phrase is it's a way of manipulating people so they start to love being inside the cage that they've been put in. So they fall in love with the kidnappers who've kidnapped them and they will defend those kidnappers against somebody who's trying to free them because they say they're okay, the good people don't hurt them. And I feel that this has been built into the system, not just now, for a very long time. If you watch that movie, Django Unchained, with Jamie Foxx, Samuel Jackson is one of my favorite, well, they're both some of my favorite actors, plays a guy who's like head of the slaves on this plantation. And his job is to spy on slaves for his white slave owner. And he's the most loathsome character, and Samuel Jackson is one of the coolest people ever lived is quite clearly relishing just this juicy role of playing this character. But I think there's a lot of that built in. Now, I went, when I was in my mid to, I was about 26, 27. It was not, about 1993. And 1992, was a British band called Soul to Soul that came out in the UK. And they may have crossed over to, to, the, to America as well. They had some big hits, Back to Life, Get a Life, and, uh, and um, I can't remember, something else. But they were really big. And the guy who's in charge of them um, had long dreads. I used to have them tied up like a, like a pineapple on his head, a big beard, and it was very cool. And it really drove a lot of black um, British to think about their roots. Mm. So for me, I had a pilgrimage. I thought, yeah, I love this. I must have family. I, and I was in my 20s, so you, know, you, you want to feel that there's something more for you than the challenges that you're having. It's Thatcher's post Thatcher's Britain in the UK, which is a horrible racist right-wing time. You might recall what it's like um, for now. So I went to the West Indies on a pilgrimage to meet my, my mother's family. So I went to meet my mother's family and I immersed myself in the culture and I was wearing at the time, which was really cool. I had, my, I had a headscarf on, I had my hair tied back, my, my dreadlocks tied back. I had a little goatee beard um, and I was wearing uh, dungarees. So I was wearing dungarees, you know, like overalls. Uh, and that was a style that everyone's having with, with uh, the, the bottoms of your, of your jeans rolled up with sandals. It was very cool. And <laughs> I did, yeah, it was cool then. I might look like an idiot now, but, but everyone decided that I was gay. They decided I was gay because they couldn't get their head around why I had a headscarf. They couldn't get their head around why, why a guy would have long hair. And they couldn't get their head around why I would dress like that. It seemed effeminate. And they also hated the fact but I had a white dad. Get your head around this. They hated my whiteness. My own black people that come from my side. Not all of them, please don't think I'm saying everybody. But this is when I was hanging around with the guys and chatting to the guys. I heard the same racist stuff about white people from them as I was hearing and trying to get away from from white people about blacks. Wow. And it made me leave with a complete disillusioned view of who my people are. And I realized that my people are not in the West Indies. They're not in the Caribbean. I thought they were from my mum's side. I thought they'd all be waiting for me. Here, Dave, here's some coconut. 
And I thought they'd be looking after me and like pouring some rum into it and I'd be hugging everybody and we'd whatever, smoke some sugar. <laughs> and in fact, all that I found was I wanted to get back to Britain. So I arrived back in the UK and it was an amazing epiphany for me to realize, Dave, you are black and you're British. This is your home. There's no homeland where your ancestors live waiting to get you off a plane and say, look, we kept this place warm for you. You have to make the most of where you are. And it was at that time I realized that Britain wasn't my home either because I hated the fact that there's so much racism built into it that you couldn't put your finger on. I worked for the BBC as a freelancer for three and a half years, never got offered a staff job, went for a number of staff jobs and could never get them. But at the time I was running a magazine, I was DJing in all the major places. Um, I was a news journalist on the radio and had a number of other things. I ran my own business as well, but they still didn't think I was right for that staff job. That they, that was a lot lower level than I was actually qualified for. I'm, 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 I've got a postgraduate diploma in radio journalism. I was looking for lower jobs just to get in there. And I made a decision. I went for a TV show called Blind Date, which I found kind of hinted at earlier. And Blind Date, the dating game, um, I went on it. Uh, they put me on the Christmas show. I won the Christmas show. 20 million people watched me win it. And it's a, pers- it's a reality TV show. So it's one of the first personality TV shows. And I calculated, and you know me well enough to know that I would have calculated it. So I won. And it was, my face was everyone. everyone. Everyone knew me. And what the BBC did was they took the opportunity to say, you know what, Dave, we don't think that you're quite cut out to be a journalist. Quite clearly, you want to be in the entertainment thing. So we're going to let you go. I was like, what? So I proved to you that I've got a lot of extra skills that you should really grab hold of because I said they were good and you're using them to get rid of me and get somebody into that spot who's got no real talents but is closer to what you wanted for the job. So then I started looking for job interviews in London. Um, in the time, it was you only had snail mail. We didn't have the chance to email or go online. There's no internet, none of that stuff. So I only had a cassette of me on that TV show, which I sent out to lots of places. And I was up... I got replies back from um, MTV, from a huge show called The Clothes Show, which is a fashion show. A breakfast TV show were interested with me. And another game show were very interested in having me coming down and working with a team. And because I was based in the Northeast, three months later, I got Dear John, Thank You But No messages from everybody. And I realized that if I'd lived in London, then I could have been in there the next day. And said, well, here I am. And the problem was, when you do something as spectacular as that, and it's online, if you look it up on Blind Date, you can see what, what I did. If you do something like that, they all say, so what else have you done? And you've got a chicken and egg situation. You can't do one without doing more, and you can't do more without getting more. Yes. And nobody would give me the second chance to prove. So in the end, it all contributed to me wanting just to leave. I just thought, I love being British. I'm proud to be British, but I can't live in this country anymore. They don't let me grow to be who I am. And I was 27, I had a girlfriend, I hadn't quite settled down. And so what I started doing was applying for jobs overseas. A job came up as a DJ in Dubai. I said, I'll take it. It was so far below my qualifications, I just took it. So they said, you'll have to leave in a week. We've got an opening for you. If you don't leave in a week, you can't have it. So within a week, I had to make a decision. Do I stay in the UK with my girlfriend, my family, my friends, or do I just go? So I went. Wow, my gosh. Dave, I can't wait to listen back to this episode again because, man, (laughs) 
Wow, what a journey. I find it so enlightening too that, you know, when you were in your early 20s, you had your epiphany, you went on your pilgrimage, and you know, you 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 ran into this disillusioned uh, yeah, experience. <laughs> yeah. But 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 when you were met with that resistance and rejection, you said, you know what, that's not for me, that's not my home. And so you sort of like fled, you 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 left that area. But I, I look at it now today, though, with that situation where when Ernesto put out the video of you speaking up and you were met with that resistance, like, who are you to talk about it? That don't have nothing to do with you. That rejection didn't cause you to retreat. So your mindset and your resilience, like 387 degrees. <laughs> from when you were in your early 20s to now, because it sounds like you have tapped into that thing that is bigger than you. And it is, it is driving you, that thing inside of you is driving you more than whatever rejection or backlash could happen. And I also wanna thank you for pointing out the whole Stockholm syndrome, because it's like, you could have felt rejected and said, okay, well, I'm not gonna say anything, I'm not gonna speak up. But because you don't, you, you have evolved, you don't have that, I would say like Stockholm syndrome, more of the internalized oppression, you know, when you're, when you're still thinking in a reverse racism way with yourself. Um, and so you come up, you come across someone who doesn't feel like that, who's all about unity, who's all about love and connection, but there's this visceral reaction that you're now facing because you're so used to this Stockholm syndrome or this internalized Oh, oppression. What do you think was the turning point in your whole being of, it doesn't matter with what rejection I face. Um, if I face it, I now have been free from those shackles. What do you think, what do you think inspired that? I think that from a very early age, I learned to read people because, I mean, my entertainment, I'll go, I'll, I'll go out in front of 100,000 people or 50,000 people, or 100 people, it doesn't matter, and I will get the Wi-Fi code of that audience, and I'll work them. And it sounds like a ridiculous thing to say, but it's on record, there's videos I'll be doing everywhere. I can do it easily of any audience. Even if I don't speak English, and they're working through translators, I can get the vibe of everybody. And that came from a very young age of trying to work out by little micro-expressions whether somebody is on my side or not. You can tell whether somebody's got a challenge with you or not very easily. And so from that age, I was able to navigate who are my friends, who are not my friends. And you can work it out pretty much, but it's difficult when you've got layers and layers of different complications and smoke screens set up, which are built into many societies. And if you're in a corporate situation, when you're going for a job interview, then it's really difficult to see whether I've got, I didn't get the job because of my color, or I didn't get the job because I wasn't good enough, or I got the job because of my color, or I got the job because I was good enough. Well, it's... Let's hope it was that version that happened, but that's not what happens. It's the other that happens. So you have to really sort of dig deep and say, well, am I happy in my own skin? If I'm happy in my own skin as who I am, do I really give a monkeys if people don't like me? And I think, I think there's a combination of things. One of the things that happened to me was I stopped looking for approval. When I got to a certain age, maybe when I moved to Dubai, I stopped looking for somebody to turn around and say, you know what, that Dave Crane's really talented. Here, let me help you. Let me elevate you to a big position where something amazing can happen because we've got our guy. We've got our guy. 
But one of the things that I've discovered, and it's a real, it's not an answer to this question, but it is a breaking down of barriers. I'm a huge fan, or I was a huge fan of cop shows, same as everybody else. Cop show, cop show, cop show, cop show, cop show. Love it, great, fantastic. Guy goes out, sorts out the buddies, comes back, everybody's happy. Until Black Lives Matters. And until it was really shown to me about police brutality. Now let me get one thing straight before I talk about police brutality. Most of the policemen that I've met are fantastic. Most of the policemen that I've come across have got the worst job in the world. Sorry, not most. Every policeman on the planet has got the worst job in the world. Let me explain that. You leave your home and you kiss your family goodbye, knowing fine well you may never see them again, depending on how your day goes. Forget about the systematic stuff. Forget about the rest of it. That's a bottom line. You are not trained to go out and pick up body parts every day but you have to do it you're not trained to have to make a snap decision on whether you save somebody or kill somebody to save somebody else or even yourself that's a thing that you have to come to terms with on the job these are the most difficult stressful situations that only army guys would normally have to come across even the other services when you're an ambulance person your job is to save people not kill people when you're a fire person your job is to take a risk of navigating through the roadmap to get somebody out in one piece if you can and keep everyone safe please will have a completely different job so i want to put that at the very beginning however what you have is a system that's built on top of it and because nobody's questioning what happened with, let's go back to the 60s. Let's go back to the redlining that was done about, let's move all the black people out of this cheap housing. Let's let it grow. Let the white people live in it. The, the cheaper, cheaper, cheaper housing will put the black people in, but we'll keep them in there. So what that does is it means that the white people get to have a property that they can sell. That's worth selling. So that means that they've got at least one generation with a house worth of money they can put into education or buying a better house or a better car. The black guys aren't going to get a foothold. So it's always going to be one step up. So when you've got that built into a system, and this has been proven, it's not me making it up, but with people watching this and going, yeah, Dave, but no, I can send you details. This is true. So when you've got that, you've got an unnatural advantage disadvantage for black people in america and in the uk is the same and many other places it's the same as well so it doesn't matter how hard you work you can never get yourself up there because this keeps moving up it doesn't matter how hard you work a handful will get to the top but they're very much a handful now where is this conversation leading since i started looking at police with a different set of eyes and it's not that i don't I mean, Dubai, the police are fantastic. None of this stuff happens in Dubai at all. I promise you that. They're the most gentle custodians of tourists coming in and keeping them safe I've ever experienced. I've never felt threatened by a policeman ever, ever, ever. But now, when I watch a cop show, and you know that bit where the guy is a bit upset, so he pushes a guy into a, a cell, or he turns around and he's running a risk and he shoots the guy and he goes into a building full of people and shoots everybody who he thinks is bad and, and then you know, has to deal with the consequences. Now I cringe because I'm thinking, I used to see it with a different set of eyes where these guys were the champions and they're the guys who are there to keep us safe. Now I'm thinking, what gave you the right to push that guy when he hadn't done anything just because you're in a bad mood? What gave you the right to shoot those people 
because you kind of made a calculation you should do, as opposed to the fact that you should be investigated and somebody would say something about it. And I think that that is a huge change. For me personally, in my world, I feel a real difference watching cop shows. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm a big superhero buff. I've been watching the TV show Gotham, all about the pre-Batman Gotham City, which is fabricated. So it's all about Jim Gordon, who becomes Commissioner Gordon, Captain Gordon, all the rest of it. And basically, there's loads of pre police brutality against these psychotic villains and their people. And people get shot all the time. But every time I see it, I'm cringing, going, ooh, ooh, ooh. I know you got the bad guys, but did they have to die? Now, I might be completely naive. I'm, I, I never walked two, two steps in a policeman's shoes. So I don't know what it's like to be a policeman. But what I do know, having been a therapist for many, many years, is sometimes I'm working in the nightclub industry as well. I worked in the nightclub industry for 20, maybe even 30 years as a DJ. And when I worked with um, one particular nightclub owner who owned a chain of top nightclubs, and I was on the radio at the time, so I could get in everywhere for free, so it was really good. He said to me, the reason that we have less trouble in our clubs than any other club, and the reason we get the richest people coming to our club than any other club is because of the way that I treat my doorman. He said, my doorman are all hard as nails. They are tough enough to take down any problems in this club. And that's why their job is to welcome everybody into the club. Not stand on the door going, I'm tough, you better behave. But be custodians, please come in. Hope you have a great night. Have a great night. Have a great night. If somebody causes a problem, calm them down. See if you can resolve the problem first. If it persists and it turns to violence, use your gifts and take them down. Yeah. What happens is 99% of people are nice in the club. They go in, have a great time, don't see any violence. They don't feel the need to feel threatened because it's a welcoming environment. Now, that was proven to work in the nightclub world many, many times ago. And what they started introducing was every, every doorman was regulated. So if you were involved in something that like police prosecuted you on, you can never work door again because you clearly were psychotic and shouldn't be in that job. So that idea of defunding the police is not defunding the police. The idea is, why don't we look at the problems of crime and start generating different solutions. So the police don't have to make those decisions. They don't have to feel scared driving around in cop cars that everyone's gonna shoot at them. They can just then be called out for when the bad things really happen. And maybe you need some levels of people who are community workers who work under the police, whose job is to sort out the domestic stuff before it happens. So it's a case that I see that there needs to be levels of consideration built in, not this straight black white answer. And I know that the problem is so endemic on money. Ultimately, the reason that prisons are full of black people, and they are full of black people more than white people in proportion to the amount of people in the population, I'm talking specifically about the US, but this may be true for other countries as well, is purely because prisons make money. Uh -huh. The more people you put in a prison, the more you can charge for the actual prisoners. If you had a different way of dealing with people and they didn't go to prison, those guys owning the prisons wouldn't make any cash. Sure so the business model is so messed up. It's, it's feeding people to be thrown in prison. Now, what's really interesting is the way that the drugs are changing. Not that I've taken drugs, I haven't taken drugs, but cannabis has become legal in so many parts of the US. And so now you cannot be thrown in prison for possession in the same way in most of the states. One thing, one thing, then we'll go back to it. Sure. Who's bought all the licenses for cannabis? 
Who what? Who's bought all the licenses across America for cannabis? I don't know. Two companies, cigarette companies. Really? White companies have bought all the licenses. So if you've got a state and it's got 20 licenses, these two companies, one bought 13 of them, one bought seven of them, nobody else gets a license to sell cannabis. This is how the system wow. keeps itself going, keeps itself maintained. So now anybody who grows it at home without that license, guess what's going to happen? They're going to be locked up and sent to prison. Anyway, so I was saying. <laughs> yeah, no, this is the, one of the things that I really enjoy, I mean, about your background in history is how knowledgeable you are in understanding the systemic issues and issues at large, just in general. I think that your um, journalism background, it just, you, you just proved it to us. And, and with all the understanding and the depth, detail, depth of the history and the current and present situation down to the media influences, and you're not even living in the country. I think that that speaks volumes because being able to speak out about the issues means that you have a very deep understanding of what's going on and you're not just relying on hearsay, but you're actually investigating from you know, the information that is provided. So before I get my final question into you, I just want to share with- No, we're not finishing so early. We've got hours to go yet. <laughs> we're going to have to, you're going to have to have a part two for sure. We're definitely going to have to have a part two. But uh, I, I do want to just pick out a couple things for our audience and for our listeners, because right now, this has been a masterclass in so many different elements, not just understanding yourself, finding out, you know, this point where you no longer seek approval. And once that you, come, you step into that understanding of self, you see how powerful it is in influencing how you show up for other people and how you respond to rejection but also making sure that you have a deep understanding of people. So Dave, your whole experience into the performing arts, into the DJ world, all of those things. I mean, it's just a natural uh, progression for what you're doing today as a hypnotherapist, as a motivational speaker, as a, as a teacher of public speaking, how to read people. It's a natural progression that I see flowing throughout your entire life, basically have becoming a part of your, your DNA. So I want to just let our audience know that the things that you heard today, these are sort of your guiding points of making sure that you understand, get an understanding of yourself, get an understanding of others around you. When you do face rejection because you are speaking up, tap into that something that is bigger than yourself, that is bigger than who you are in your immediate uh, environment. It doesn't have to be what's going on right in your own home, your own country, your own household. It can be in an entirely different country, but make sure you do your investigation and get the facts. Also, I want to ask you, Dave, you have several things coming up and going on. Speak on Stage is one of them. Industry Icon is one of them. Can you just share a little bit more about you know, what those are, what you do, who you help, and how people can find you? Thank you very much. I help people to find their voice predominantly. Their mindset, their voice, their branding, their marketing, their business are actually closer together than you'd think. Nowadays, we look at, we're working towards having, and the coronavirus has 
force this to happen sooner rather than later. A liquid economy where people will lose their jobs and they'll never get their job back again. But what they will do is get freelance work for many different people and that will come to a bigger wage than they got when they're working for one single person. So therefore, they're going to create their own brand and they're going to be prepared to stand alone as an entrepreneur or a freelancer or have their own business. But they can also grow it and have freelancers all around the world working under them on certain projects. So I train people how to get their voice. So they've got a speaking voice on stage, off stage, online and offline, especially right now as a virtual broadcaster. And I find that I'm working with people all around the world to coach them. Now, the way I coach them is two things. First of all, because I'm very expensive, because I'm brilliant at what I do, um, I give them two options, one of which is to go to the industry icon when I work them directly and fast track them to being brilliant at what they do. And maybe one day they'll almost be as good as you, Monique. I doubt it because you rock. Um, and also speakonstage.com, where if you go to that website, I've, I've basically crystallized and bottled all the stuff I've learned over the years as a speaker, as a trainer, um, getting over a fear of public speaking, being able to work in the audience, being able to create your brand, being able to create content, being able to get your mind in the right space. I've got them as modules that are very affordable for $99 each. So you have a whole set for less than $1,000. That is to make it really accessible for anybody around the world. Because right now, the one thing I don't have a lot of time of, a lot of is time. Time's the most precious um, thing that anybody could have, I think. And so I'm very cautious about how I use it. So it made sense to create a website where people just go and get enough of me that could keep them happy without me training them one-to-one -one or one to whatever. And then when people want specifics and they want to get from where they are right now to the top in their industry, then I can help them create a roadmap and get them there. But I'm also broadcasting every day to support this whole thing. I do a show called Speak on Stage TV. I do it on LinkedIn. But I also do it on Facebook, on YouTube, uh, and on Periscope into Twitter, and bits go on Instagram as well. And what this is, is a daily show of about 45 minutes to an hour, all about personal development, self-improvement, with the aim of becoming a speaker, a better business person, a higher performing brand and able to market yourself around the world. So for instance, I talked about the recession and how you can then look at the three different ways of recovering from a recession and how you can improve your business by learning a ton of skills that the World Economic Forum has put out. There's, there's basically 10 skills you need to learn to be more effective or how to get a rock star attitude how to feel like a rock star regardless of what happens around you and regardless of whether the people can buy into you or not. A real rock star, the likes of your Slash and Alice Cooper and, and anybody you name, you know, Mick Jagger, the Beatles, all these big stars, Ariana Grande, Jay-Z, whoever you want to think of, they got there despite everybody not buying into them. And there's an attitude that goes into it. And that attitude is not just exclusive for music or movies, it can be in anything. You could be a plumber and you can have a rock star attitude. And it's not a bad attitude, it's the ability to believe you can be better, you can be flamboyant, you can get people under your tribe so they want to work with you, and then you become positioned as an industry icon. So that's what I'm sharing, and it's completely free, and everybody's welcome to join me. But subscribe to me on all the different platforms, and that way you'll get an alert when I go live. Fantastic, Dave Crane. You guys heard him. And I definitely endorse Dave Crane, endorse his show. I have worked with Dave personally. He is amazing and fantastic. You're not only going to learn about speaking, but you're also going to learn different perspectives about what's going on in the world and as evidence of our current episode today.
So once again, thank you for listening to the Bridge to You podcast. You can follow me on social media. You can listen to the podcast in Apple iTunes, on Stitcher, on my website, or anywhere you listen to your podcast. Thanks once again. And until next time, be well. Thanks for listening to the Bridge to You podcast. Visit ClaireCommunicationSolutions.com or connect with me on LinkedIn, Monique Russell, or Instagram at ClearCommunicationCoach. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.